Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners, You can support the show on a one-time basis by mailing a donation to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913, that's 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. And I want to go ahead and thank Christine for becoming our latest Patreon supporter at the Shamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Christine. Now it is time for this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, September 10th, 1949, and the title is The Sullivan Kidnapping. Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A 22-year-old girl has disappeared. A letter has been received. It demands $30,000 for the girl's return. The letter is signed, The Wolf. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. Investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, October 18th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the stats office, and it was 3.26 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Got those mugs you asked for, Joe. Here they are. Thanks, Harris. Backstrand, leave yet? In a minute. I'm going out with him. What's the address out there, the Sullivan place? 814 Castro Boulevard. You go straight out Santa Monica, take a left at Castro. I remember. You ready, Chief? Yeah, man. Friday, you call Romero yet? Right now. Get on it. This one we don't fool with. Yeah. Come on, Harris. Hello. Sorry to wake you, Ben. This is Joe. How you feeling? Oh, hi, Joe. What time is it? 3.30 a.m. How do you feel? Oh, a lot better. Be back to work tomorrow. You'll be ready in 20 minutes. I'll pick you up. 20 minutes? Okay, what's up? You remember Martin Sullivan, vice president of the Third National Bank? Sullivan? Yeah, yeah, what about it? He's got a 22-year-old daughter, or he had one. She's gone. (laughs) 
made good time, Joe. Where are we headed? Sullivan home out on Castro Boulevard. Ed's out there now with Harris. Mm. Any leads to work on? No, nothing so far. The girl disappeared a little before 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. At 11 last night, he got a letter. They want $30,000. Sullivan hasn't got that kind of money. Yeah, I know it. Poor guy's almost out of his mind. Fill me in. How did it happen? Well, the guy took the girl out of business school. He had her called out of class. Told her her father was sick, said he was a friend of the family's. Well, how about the teachers? What was their story? Said the girl didn't want to go with the man at first, but he finally talked her into it. Kept telling her her father was dying. That's about as low as it come? Yeah. Did he use a car? Witnesses said it was a blue sedan. They didn't get the license number or the make. Did they remember what the guy looked like? About 5'9", 160, brown suit, dark hair. Hmm. Nothing else? No. Here's a copy of the letter. The usual. Read it. Yeah, yeah. I have your daughter, Judy. Get, uh, what, what's that? 30000 $30,000 quick if you want her back alive. Don't call police or I'll kill her. Contact you later. Signed, uh, what was it? The Wolf. Oh, Wolf. Huh? I can think of a better name. Come on, here we are. He's got the original note, Joe. Lee Jones down at the crime lab. He's checking it for prints and handwriting. Well, if he was... Oh, hi, Davis. Yeah, right on the house, boys. She's waiting for you. Thanks, Dave. Hi, Joe. Ben. In the living room. Mm, thank you. That's the way I see it, Mr. Sullivan. Now, you understand exactly what you have to do? Yes, I... I'll do as you say. All right. Here are the two men who will help you. Sergeant Friday and Sergeant Romero, homicide. Yes, sir. How do you do? I do. Mr. Backstrand, I... I, Are you sure about all this? He he might get frightened. He he might do something to Judy. Believe me, Mr. Sullivan, it's the only way. I know how you must feel, but we can't do anything else. All right, I... I want to see Mrs. Sullivan first. I'll be ready in a moment. Any developments? Yeah. Come on back in the dining room. There it is on the table. Second note from the guy. Mm, telegram. When did this come? About half an hour ago. Guy phoned it into Western Union from a public booth. Couldn't trace it. I see, Joe. Yeah. Be at Elysian Park, 5 o'clock this morning, near Balkan Drive. Come alone. Bring 30000 Will return girl. Don't tell cops. Kill her if you do. The wolf. 4 a.m. now, Skipper. Not much time. I know it. We'll have to do as he says. No other way. Then Sullivan's going out there alone? You're going with him. You and Romero. You'll be hidden out in the trunk of the car. Any plan? Get him. That's all. Ben and I went out the back door and into the Sullivan garage. We jammed ourselves into the trunk compartment and Harris closed the door on us. The latch was fixed so that the door could be pushed open from the inside. A few minutes later, Mr. Sullivan came out, got in the car, and we drove off. At three minutes to five, we pulled up at the meeting place in Elysian Park. We waited. Nothing happened. At five minutes past five, it started to thunder. That's all we need now. Thunderstorm. Stuff in here in this trunk, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Ben, listen. 
Sounds like he's pacing up and down alongside the car, doesn't it? Yeah, listen. Can't hear anything else. Can you? No. We better stay undercover. Yeah. The rain is darting in. Wonder what happened to the wolf. Cold feet, maybe. Let's wait it out. time you got now? Move over a little. Let me get my watch up. Yeah. A little past 5.30. Sergeant. Sergeant. Mr. Sullivan? Yes. Do you think he's coming? He's late. It's getting daylight. We better wait it out, Mr. Sullivan. Now, look, don't come back here again. If he's watching, you might tip him off. Oh. oh all right. All right. Poor guy. Coming up the road toward us. It's stopping. Yeah. Swing over to our car. You ready? Right. Talking with Sullivan. They're coming back here. Now watch it. Brandy, Romero. That you, Ed? Yeah. The meeting's off. Come on out. All right. <laughs> Got a cramp in my leg. Well, I'm cramped all over. Mr. Sullivan, drive back home. We'll contact you there. Oh, oh, all right, Chief. Ben, Joe, come on over to the car. What's the story, Ed? Guy had no intention of following through with this meeting tonight. Well, how come? He told us. Phone at five o'clock. Tried to trace the call. He wouldn't stay on the line long enough. What did he have to say? He wanted more money. Bragged about how smart he was. How we'd never get him. Well, he knows Sullivan's called in the police. Sure. Said he didn't care. We'd never get him anyway. Yeah, pretty cocky. Pretty smart. Take my word for it, he's no dummy. Control 1 to 80K. Control 1 I'll get 80K. it. 80K. 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Go ahead. 80K, go to your office, code 3. Go to your office, code 3. TMA 367. All right, Romero. Let's roll. More than 12 hours had passed since word of Judy Sullivan's disappearance had been phoned in a homicide. During that time, an all-points bulletin containing the descriptions of the suspect, his car, and the girl had been sent out on the teletype to law enforcement agencies throughout the area. The same descriptions were broadcast over the police radio every hour. The Sullivan home had been placed under strict surveillance, and Mr. Sullivan instructed not to contact the suspect without knowledge of the police. He'd raised almost $10,000 in cash to buy him off. The serial number on each one of the bills had been copied by a police stenographer, and then rechecked by a homicide officer. So far, the wolf, as he called himself, had made three separate contacts, but he'd covered his tracks well. We knew that he was somewhere in the city, 500 square miles of it, and we knew we had to find him fast. It was 18 minutes past six when we got back to homicide. Hi, Chief. Now listen, you got something for us, Mac? Here, this letter, special delivery. Came in about 25 minutes ago. Can I see that, Mike? Yeah, that's him. Yeah, according to the postmark, he must have mailed it right after he grabbed the girl. Yeah, listen to this. Stay away from Sullivan. If the kid's found dead, it's your fault. Stay away, the wolf. All right, Mike. Get it over to the crime lab and have Lee check it for prints. Right, Chief. Lee, find any prints on the second note, Mike? Two. Running through R&I now. Friday, Romero. Get down there and see if they got a make. I'll call out to Sullivan's and check with Harris. Right, Ed. Let's go, Ben. Who's watching the Sullivan house beside Harris? Uh, Carpenter and Davis. Backstrand's afraid the girl's father will try to make a deal with the guy. Has he tried it yet? No, he hasn't yet. You couldn't blame him if he did. Worried sick. Oh, yeah. Here we are. 
Hi, fellas. Just coming down to see you. You got something, Larry? Those two prints Lee Jones lifted off that letter got a make on them from the single print file. That's good, Larry. Let's see, huh? There it is. Pull the whole package on them. Donald Alfred Kiefer. Looks like a real bad one, doesn't he? Donald Alfred Kiefer, male, Caucasian, age 29, 5 feet 8 inches, 170 pounds, brown eyes, dark brown hair. He had one previous arrest for forgery in Los Angeles 10 months before. Kiefer's occupation at the time of his arrest was listed as bank clerk at the Third National Bank. Ben went back into the files and pulled the crime report. Then we called Ed Backstrand. There's the answer, Skipper. At the time Kiefer pulled that forgery job at the bank, Mr. Sullivan was one of the vice presidents. Mm, go on. Sullivan was the one who preferred charges against Kiefer and saw that he was prosecuted. Where's this Kiefer now? Oh, let me see. He was placed on probation, and on May 16th this year, he returned to his home in Omaha, Nebraska. That's 1380 Mackinac Avenue. All right, Romero. Get Omaha on the phone and have them check out Kiefer. Right, Skipper. Friday, take Kiefer's package and this note down to Don Myers. Have him check the handwriting. And get over to the crime lab and see what Jones lifted off that last letter we got. All right, Ed. The faster we work, the faster we'll put this guy behind bars. Now move. How's the writing compared, Don? What'd you find? It yeah, looks good. See here? Slants as crosses. Double loops as L's. Open A's. Pressure on the downstroke. Donald Kiefer, Wolf. Same handwriting. Lifted three prints off this last note, Joe. Brought them out to the iodine fume gun. They match with the first. Thanks, Lee. Did you find anything else? I don't know. It'll help you much. We examined the paper for watermarks and texture. Both notes are written on the same kind of paper. Impressions show both pieces of paper from the same tablet. Check the density of the carbon and the pencil he used. Both specimens match. Same pencil. By mid-afternoon, Donald Keeper's description had been broadcast throughout the area. Bulletins were dispatched to all departments, and an APB was teletyped to the entire state. Men were stationed at every post office in the city to watch for notes that might come through the mail. The bus depots, railroad terminals, the airports, and all the main roads leading out of the city were under strict surveillance. The entire Los Angeles area was broken down into single square mile districts, and a house-to-house canvas was started. A squad of men were assigned to cover each square mile. Outlying towns and cities were requested to do the same. By 5 o'clock that afternoon, the greatest dragnet operation in the history of the city was underway. We were sure Donald Kiefer was somewhere inside. At 12 minutes past 5, Ben got the call back from the Omaha police. Yeah, yeah, I got it. 6X-ray 419. Nebraska plates, right. Well, thank you a lot. Yeah, bye. They had a make on the car. Lots more. The Omaha cops are looking for Kiefer, too. Want him for a robbery there two months ago. Yeah? In that robbery, he used a stolen 1939 blue sedan. Nebraska license plate, 6X-ray 419. How about his family and his friends back there? They all been checked? Yeah, they said Kiefer left Omaha about six weeks ago. Didn't know where he was heading. Well, get that car description to communications, huh? APB, teletype, and broadcast. I'll tell Ed. Yeah, right, Joe. Right in, Romero. Yeah, Ed. What are you tied up with? Well, just got a call from Omaha. Make on Kiefer in the car. Give it to me. You two get out to the Sullivan house fast as you can. What's happened, Skipper? Martin Sullivan's disappeared. <laughs> Harris, how did it happen? About three this afternoon, Mr. Sullivan got a phone call. Said he had to go down to the bank. I went with him. He had me wait in the reception room, and he went in his office. After waiting ten minutes, I got suspicious and went in. He was gone. That's it. Did he get any more money? This morning. Five thousand dollars. Did you get the serial numbers off the bills? Yeah. 
Shouldn't have let him get out of my sight. Forget it. Right now, we've got to find out where he's gone to meet Kiefer. Did you talk to Mrs. Sullivan about it, Harris? She says she doesn't know anything about it. Let's try her again. Come on, let's go inside. Hi, fellas. Hi. Where's Mrs. Sullivan, Dave? Back in the sitting room, lying down. Doctor's with her. Come on. What time you got, Ben? Mm, 6.35. I'll get it. Hello? Where are you? Where are you now? Where are you now? We'll be right out. That was Martin Sullivan. He met with Kiefer. Out in Laurel Canyon. Did he get his daughter back? Yeah. Wrapped in newspapers. All cars in the area were notified that a contact had been made with Kiefer. We got in the car and drove out to Laurel Canyon. The entire area had been blocked off. We found Martin Sullivan standing in the middle of the road at the end of East Winding Way. 500 feet down the hill was a private residence where Sullivan had telephoned us. It was the only building in the immediate vicinity. A few yards beyond the point where East Winding Way ended, back in a clump of tall grass, we found the body of Martin Sullivan's daughter. We notified the crime lab, Chief Backstrand and the coroner. Despite a severe state of emotional shock, Martin Sullivan tried to tell us the story. He said Judy was all right. I believed him. I wanted her back. Judy. I tricked the officer, the one watching me. He said, come along, no police. Did you see his car, Mr. Sullivan? I wanted her back. I wanted Judy back. I... I did as he said. I drove here at six o'clock and I waited. I put the money on the front seat, like, like he said. Did he get the money, Mr. Sullivan? And I... I got out. left parking lights on. I stood up there by the end of the road, waiting. Mr. Sullivan? And he drove up. He, he took the money. Then he came up to me. He had a gun. I wanted Judy back. He had a gun. Did you see his car? He said she was up there, beyond the road, tied to a tree. I brought her back. Mr. Sullivan, did you see his car? I went to look for Judy. He drove away. She wasn't there. By the tree. Couldn't find her. On the way back, I... I saw the bundle on the way back. Before he went into a state of complete collapse, we showed Martin Sullivan a picture of Donald Alfred Kiefer. We definitely identified him. 
The information was immediately relayed back to Central Division, rebroadcast to the entire police radio system. A teletype was dispatched to sheriff's offices, and communications were sent to police stations throughout the country. The house-to-house search throughout the entire city intensified. The dragnet in which we hoped to trap Donald Kiefer was drawing slowly inward. It was 12 midnight. Extra Sullivan Girl murder and extra read all about it. Citizens join search for killer. Friday, did the papers get a list of the numbers on that ransom money? Yeah, it got them in the final net edition. Two and a half pages of serial numbers. Gave it a big spread. Look at these pictures of Kiefer here. All over the front page. The more the better, Romero. I hope this town never forgets that face. Good reminder. You don't make deals with killers. Hi, fellas. Come on over. Find anything yet, Lee? Just checking over these towels here. Found them wrapped around the girl's body inside the papers. Funny thing about those papers. What's that, Lee? They're all yesterdays. Every story about the girl's disappearance has been clipped out. Maybe the guy's making up a scrapbook. How about the towels, Jones? Any laundry marks? Not a one so far, Ed. Every one of them was clipped off. Pretty smart. The morgue post the body in? They're doing it now. Yeah, nasty one. Yeah. Did you get any footprints or tire marks out where they found the body? Lots of them. All cast. Bossy and Taylor are checking them. Not one sink. What is it, Jones? I don't know. Under the seam here. This towel. Wait a minute. Joe, hmm? that pair of snippers there. Yeah. There you are. Thanks. Press back under the seam. There. That's one tag he missed. Any markings, Lee? Yeah. Greenway Apartments, Los Angeles. One look at the apartment was enough. In an adjoining garage, we found the car which Kiefer had used, a blue sedan. Nebraska license plate 6X-Ray 419. When we got back to the office, Chief Backstrand immediately issued a cancellation of the want order for the blue sedan, and then he ordered a detail of men to stake out the car in the event Kiefer decided to come back for it. Here's a coroner's report, Joe. Oh, let's see it. Yeah. Cause of death, strangulation. Time of death, Monday, October 18th, approximately. 2 p.m. One hour after he grabbed her? Uh, that can't be right. Skipper in his office? No, well, he's out for a minute. Hey, Joe, Ben, take the call off 2503, will you? Thanks, Mike. Right. Would you give me the call on 2503, please? Thanks. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, when? We'll be right over. Some of the ransom money, Ben, just showed up. Beverly and Highland. Come on. The man's name was Ralph Donahue. He operated a used car lot on the corner of Beverly and Highland. He told us that early that morning he sold a dark blue late model coupe to a man who gave his name as Fred Sims. The man paid for the car in cash. Donahue told us that he checked the serial numbers on the bills after the man had driven away. Serial numbers check out, Joe, every one of them. If I only thought to look, officer, and you know I generally do, I'm the suspicious kind anyway, but, well, this morning I must have been asleep. You got the full description on the car, Ben? Yeah, Joe. All right, let's get it on the air right away. I saw his mug in the paper while I was waiting for you. Too late. Sorry. Yeah, thanks. At ten minutes past three that afternoon, another piece of the ransom money turned up at a busy downtown department store. The clerk was unable to remember who gave her the bill. The detail throughout the general downtown area was strengthened. The house-to-house search of the entire city for Judy Sullivan's murderer went on. The afternoon dragged into the early evening. At twenty minutes to seven, Ben and I had a hamburger and a cup of coffee in the drugstore at East Broadway and Third. 
And then we got back in the car, checked with communications, and started cruising the neighborhood again. At nine minutes to eight, a man answering the description of Donald Kiefer was seen crossing Sunset Boulevard just below Highland. Seven minutes later, the same man was reported near the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Las Palmas. Communications relayed the information. At 21 minutes past eight, our car, 80K, along with a dozen others, were concentrated in the Hollywood Boulevard area from Gower Street to La Brea, Franklin Avenue to Santa Monica Boulevard. At 24 minutes past eight, another piece of the ransom money was passed at a cigar store on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Hawthorne Street. The number of men and radio cars in the area was redoubled. Plainclothes officers were stationed at every intersection to keep an eye on pedestrian traffic. At 18 minutes to nine, the dark blue coupe which Kiefer had bought that morning was spotted parked in an alley just below Hollywood Boulevard and Coenga. We called Ed Backstrand. City Hall. 2503. 2503. Chief of Detectives Office, Hannah. This is Friday, Mike, the Chief there. Yeah, wait a minute. Just going out the door. Ed, it's for you. Backstrand. Friday, Ed. Just spotted Kiefer's car, the one he bought this morning, parked in an alley off Coenga. Harris and I are on our way up there now. We'll take care of the car. You take care of this call. Just came in. What do you got? Theater on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Fairview. The girl in the box office just took in a $10 ransom bill. Yeah. She got a good look at the man who passed the bill. She says it's Kiefer. All right, Ben, come on. Yeah. You've got the list of serial numbers? Right here. Let's check at the window. Yes, sir. How many, please? Police officers. Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Oh, yes, sir. Mr. Rayburn, the police are here. Would you step around to the side door, Sergeant? Yes, ma'am. Margie, relieve Francis for a minute. Francis, come here. Bring that $10 bill with you. Sharp girl, officer, that Francis. Sharp. Here it is, Mr. Rayburn. Uh, all right, Sergeant. There you are. $10 bill and the list of serial numbers. Check out all right, Ben. That's it, Joe. Good work, miss. You reported the man came in about a half hour ago. You sure it was Kiefer? Yes, sir. I have his picture in the box office just behind the change machine. I recognized him right away. And as far as you know, he hasn't left the theater. That's right, sir. All right, Mr. Rayburn. I'm sorry. I'm afraid we'll have to interrupt the show. Anything you say, Sergeant. Anything. Ben, you keep an eye on the front exit. I'll call communications. All right, Joe. 80K to Control 4. 80K to Control 4. 80K, go ahead. Control 4, clear all frequencies. The Sullivan murder suspect, Donald Kiefer, has been located in the theater on the southeast corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Fairview. Have all units surround the area. 80K, Roger. Attention all units. Attention all units. Assist 80K at the theater on the southeast corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Fairview. The Sullivan murder suspect has been located in the theater. Go ahead, 80K. Control 4. Have all units converge in the general area, Hollywood Boulevard and Fairview. Unit 62R to block off the intersection at Hollywood Boulevard and North Cherokee. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic. Unit 61A to block the intersection at Hollywood Boulevard and Hudson Street. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic. Unit 71 and 72R to block the alley behind the theater. Unit 66 and 67R to assist at main entrance to the theater. Within a few minutes, the one-half-mile area around the theater was completely blockaded. Every exit and entrance to the theater was covered. At 9.23, we met Harris and Ed Backstrand in the theater manager's office. Backstrand outlined our plan of operation. At 9.28, a detail of 14 men walked down the side aisles on the main floor of the theater and took up their posts on either side of the orchestra pit. The picture was stopped and every light in the theater was turned on. Ed Backstrand, Harris, Ben, and I went down the aisle and up onto the stage. Backstrand made the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen... We're sorry to interrupt the picture, but this is important. We're police officers. 
We've traced the murderer of Judy Sullivan to this theater. He is in this theater now. Now, we're going to search the theater row by row, and we'd like to ask your cooperation. There's no need to be panicky or afraid. Those who wish to leave now may do so. Leave by the main entrance. Each one of you will be checked as you go out the door. And for the benefit of the man we're looking for, don't try to escape. Every exit is covered and the entire area is blockaded. Don't place any more lives in jeopardy. Come on, Ben. Backstage, Joe. We can make it from there. All right, let's go. Come on, hustle it, Ben. Yeah. The next building. You'll probably try to jump for it. All right, watch it. I think this door leads out to the roof. There he goes. All right, keeper, hold it. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. I give up. Throw your gun down. Over here. Don't shoot. Don't. Let's get him. All right, coppers. I got it figured. They won't top me for this. Didn't know what I was doing. Put the cuffs on him, Ben. Get away from me, you crumb. You shouldn't have hit him, keeper. Try the cuffs now. Yeah. Come on, let's get him in out of the rain. What's the hurry? Why spoil a good rain? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Donald Alfred Kiefer was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 15th in a new series of authentic cases transcribed from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Deputy United States Marshal John B. Glenn of Boise, Idaho, who on the morning of July 31st, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. came to you from Los Angeles. Theater Guild on the Air returns tomorrow night on NBC. Welcome back. A well-done story of a kidnapping investigation with some really gut-wrenching scenes, particularly when Martin Sullivan was talking about his daughter when he... Uh, tried to pay off the ransom. I think that's a very raw and realistic reaction, while at the same time not being sensational about it. At the same time, I also think that there were some really nice touches with the sound effects. The realism of them in the trunk of the car and the thunderstorm in particular stand out. Dragnet, particularly in these early days, had this dedication to high-quality production. Uh, and in making listeners feel like they were there with the police wherever they were. They wanted to really make the whole situation feel real, which was why Jack Webb used far more sound effects men than other programs did. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback. 
And we start on the site called X, where Tina says, great episode, regarding Myra the Redhead. Over on YouTube, regarding 14 jewel thefts, Ruth writes, it's strange to think of Harry Morgan as a criminal. Well, if you think 16 jewel thefts was strange, then what you would really find strange is the movie Appointment with Danger, where Jack Webb and Harry Morgan both play criminals. In fact, uh, the character Jack Webb plays is named Joe. It's like the Dragnet version of the Mirror Universe. Then we have an interesting question on YouTube from Theo, who writes, I love it when we find missing or lost episodes. Recently, Doctor Who used AI to clean up some of their degraded episodes. What do you think of using AI to recreate lost episodes from scripts that remain? Thanks so much, Theo. AI is a really hot topic right now. I've got, uh, I guess, an interesting perspective on it, or at least I've got some interesting background in it, given that one of my books was pirated and used by Meta and Bloomberg to... Uh, train their AIs. Now, I was one of like 100,000 authors, so it wasn't like I was especially singled out, but that definitely colors my opinion a little bit on this topic. That said, I think that AI can be used as a legitimate tool by writers and artists to aid human creative efforts. I think we've seen humans taking advantage of new tools as computers have come along, for instance. There's no denying that there's some fantastic art in the 2D animated films, mostly from the past, that is just gorgeous. But there have also been some great films made using computer animation. I can't say that something like Up or Encanto isn't art because there was computer animation involved. Now, at the same time, computer animation has also enabled a lot of very lazily done film. And I think that's part of the reason why you have so many people who will, for example, complain about all the CGI in movies. It's just kind of becomes this thing where at first it might have been spectacular, but now it's just kind of become bog standard. And many people will marvel at watching older films before computers came along and be like, wow, they use practical effects to make this happen. I've also seen when you take a look at films that are just terribly made, so many of them are just you know, poorly produced by people who didn't even fully understand the software or didn't really want to put in the time to use the software to get a great result. And we've already seen that with AI, that there is a kind of lazy use of it that often leads to the same sort of mediocrity we've seen with poor or bog standard uh, CG. So my general stand on AI is that in principle, it can be used to aid artistic efforts and other efforts, but there's going to be a lot of lazy garbage that comes from people who are able to access it, but don't actually understand how it works. 
Now, when it comes to this, I, I have two thoughts. First of all, the big difference between Doctor Who and old-time radio is that Doctor Who is very much commercially viable. There are millions uh, made on Doctor Who every year and spin-off uh, media in DVD sales that gives it a level of interest that most other franchises would not have. Old-time radio, on the other hand, is not commercially viable. The vast majority of it isn't. And even that which is, like Episodes of the Shadow or something like that, it's not Doctor Who, not in the same league financially at all. So you would need the price of this technology to come down to such a level that you could essentially have volunteers doing it. But you might be able to do it, should you? No, not really. At least not in my opinion. I feel like that is really too far. Now, there are some really poor quality old-time radio recordings. If you had an AI tool that w could clean that up and make the voices clear, that's fine. I think creating a performance using the voices of actors who are not with us raises a lot more problems. I mean, I think that there are legal issues, obviously, because even with old-time radio not being you know, under copyright, a new performance using the voices of those actors, that would raise all sorts of questions because, you know, books can enter the public domain. Is there some point where an actor enters the public domain? But I really feel like with the best of programs that what makes them great what makes Bob Bailey's Johnny Dollar great are those choices that he makes as an actor those bits of humanity that he puts into his role and trying to create that from whole cloth feels a bit disrespectful that's beyond, you know, cleaning up audio and cleaning up video, which is what the BBC did. Honestly, if you're going to do anything with missing radio scripts, have human actors recreate them. There are several different efforts towards a recreation, and these are not going to be the same as if you're hearing the radio plays. Because they're different people, different talents, and in many cases, you know, they can't use the same music and cues. But what you're hearing in that case is you're hearing actual actors interpreting a script, giving a performance. And the quality will, you know, vary from recreation to recreation. There are some excellent groups out there, the Gotham Radio Players. A few years back, they did... Their own performance of one of the missing Dragnet episodes, The Big Cop. And they did a very good job. Now, it wasn't the same as the original, but it was a valid interpretation. I particularly, what stood out to me was the captain in that episode gave a really well-deserved smackdown to a crooked cop, and it really came forth that the captain actor was from New York in a very obvious way. You know, it wasn't over the top. 
But you wouldn't have heard that in the 1950s on Dragnet. But it was a perfectly valid and really good interpretation of the script. And then you've got things like Hot Copy Radio Theater or the American Radio Theater. And these groups have done false radio scripts, and I think that's the best approach to them. Trying to program an AI to do Jack Webb or Bob Bailey or Virginia Gregg's voice. Maybe someday somebody will do it, but I won't be listening. But as always, thanks for the question. Really do appreciate it. Well, now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank Tom. Tom has been one of our Patreon supporters since December 2019, currently supporting the podcast at the shameless level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support. And that will do it for today. We'll be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. But join us back here on Monday as we begin a new series, The Adventures of the Falcon. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.